Hey everyone, this is Multipolarista. I'm Benjamin Norton, and this is part two of an interview that I did with a good friend of the show, Rania Kalik, an excellent journalist. She's been around the world doing work in Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and most recently, Cuba, Ethiopia, and Eritrea. Now, in the first part of this episode, if you haven't watched it, go check it out. Rania talked about her trip to Cuba. She talked about her interviews with people from the public health system and talked about how Cuba has created multiple COVID vaccines, how Cuba's socialist health system is really a model that the entire world can learn from. There are so many incredible things that the small island nation that has been suffocated for over 60 years by an illegal U.S. blockade, by suffocating sanctions, there's so much that it's accomplished and there's so much to learn from. So definitely check out part one. It's, it's a really interesting interview. In part two here, Rania talks about a trip that she took with her colleagues from Breakthrough News to Ethiopia and Eritrea, two very important geostrategically located countries in the Horn of Africa. And the conflict there, the violent conflict that these countries have been waging, uh, you know, defending themselves from these attacks that were initiated by the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, which apparently has the support of the U.S. government and Western governments. These two countries in the Horn of Africa are being targeted largely because they're allies of China. And in the new Cold War, Africa has become a major site of conflict where Western imperialist powers are trying to overthrow independent sovereign African governments to prevent them from having positive relations with China, with Russia, with Iran, with other independent countries, to prevent them from being part of Beijing's international Belt and Road Initiative. So with that said, this is part two of my interview with Rania Kalik. Rania, we talked about your trip to Cuba that you took with Breakthrough News, yes. but you also, before that, took a trip to not only Ethiopia, but also Eritrea. Both countries deserve an entire episode. We don't have that yeah. much time, but I mean, especially Eritrea. No disrespect to Ethiopia, which is an incredible country with an incredible history, but I, I, don't, I know people who have been to Ethiopia. I don't know really anyone who has been to Eritrea. I mean, Eritrea, like Cuba, is a country that has suffered for many years under sanctions, under a kind of de facto blockade, and they have been forced to adopt a model of development because they're under siege, right? Yeah. A lot of these yeah. countries in the global south, you know, Iran, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, the DPRK, Syria, these countries that are under siege are forced to develop this new kind of interesting model. So I'm wondering if you can reflect overall on your experience. Here's a photo of you with your colleagues, Eugene Perrier and Will Whiteman from the excellent Breakthrough News team. Talk about what your trip was like to Ethiopia and Eritrea. So our trips to these two places were very different. Um, Ethiopia was obviously like, is obviously like has, has very much of the country was a war zone when we were there back in December. Uh, but we first started in Addis Ababa, which the U.S. was insisting every single day Americans need to leave because there's like a looming war coming to the capital, but it was like totally safe and normal. It's quite a developed city. 
Um, so we spent some time in the capital city, Addis. There's some of the images you're showing now. I was just kind of showing how normal life is. But there's been this war going on in Ethiopia. I'll just briefly note there's been a war between the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, and the government of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. And just for some quick background, I know you've told your viewers about this before, but for those who don't know, the TPLF was in charge of Ethiopia for almost three decades, for almost 30 years. They ruled with an iron fist, um, and they were really the America's like policing force in the Horn of Africa. In collaboration with the Americans, they actually attacked the Eritreans and stole, stole some of their land and had a war with the Eritreans several times in the 90s. Um, and in the 2000s, I think 2006, they participated in the invasion of Ethiopia, which or I'm sorry, of Somalia, neighboring Somalia, uh, under the so-called banner of the war on terror to basically destroy the Islamic State Court or the Islamic Courts Union, which was like one of the first stable governments to come to power in Somalia after state collapse throughout the 90s caused mostly by the United States' policies there. Um, and... Uh, that devastated Somalia, and they carried out so many atrocities there. Meanwhile, they, you know, across Ethiopia, they were incredibly anti-democratic. Um, they looted like $30 billion throughout their time in power, uh, So, which is really weird that there's some academics who call the TPLF leftist just because they, like, identified as Marxist in the 1980s when they were fighting the Derg in Ethiopia. Um, anyways, well, they were well, and really quickly, not to get in a really long intra left debate about history and revisionism and all this stuff, but specifically they were like Hojaites, kind of like old, like Maoist split offs that call themselves anti revisionists. And a lot of those groups that called themselves anti revisionists ended up blatantly allying with us imperialism <laughs> openly because they claimed that the Soviet union was social imperialist. So they were allied with capitalist imperialism <laughs> against what they called social imperialism. So the TPLF comes out of this tendency of the left that has a long history of openly collaborating with Western imperialism. So, so throughout their time, you know, in power, the U.S. like just rained aid down on the TPLF. A lot of it was stolen and they were kind of allowed to do whatever they wanted in Ethiopia. So people were like tortured, imprisoned and tortured and exiled. And the U.S. never really cared because the TPLF were sort of like their lapdogs. And then come 2016, there was protests in Ethiopia uh, against the TPLF government. Uh, and ultimately, that led to the rise of Abiy Ahmed, who actually came out of a coalition that was, you know, that, out of a TPLF uh, dominated coalition. But ultimately, when he did come to power democratically, I should say, he pushed the TPLF out of power. And, uh, you know, you're an authoritarian group that's been in charge for almost 30 years. You're not going to go down without a fight. And that's what happened. The TPLF responded to being pushed out of power by, in November of 2020, uh, launching what can only be considered a violent coup attempt against the Ethiopian government. They launched a huge attack on the Ethiopian Northern Command Base. And they killed, like, Nobody knows the real number of how many they killed, but it's supposed to, you know, it's suspected to be in the thousands. That's a huge attack. Like, think about that militarily. Like, there wasn't a moment in Iraq or even overall where American soldiers were killed in the thousands. Imagine if they had been. And it wasn't just soldiers. They attacked nearby villages and, like, ethnically cleansed them and killed hundreds of civilians. And the Ethiopian government responded by attacking them back. And that is the, how the war started. The The... TPLF even 
openly said they started the war like on several occasions, but had to be men in power for so long. They had formed relationships with international media outlets. They, the, the Ethiopians who were staffing a lot of the UN positions were dominated by pro TPLF people. Um, so like they had a propaganda apparatus that went to work right away. Like the day they attacked the Ethiopian government, there was like a hashtag trending of Tigray genocide. Um, and from then on, that was the narrative that the entire Western media apparatus went with was there's a genocide in Tigray. The Ethiopian government is carrying out a genocide against Tigrayans. And that's the story. When the story was much more complicated than that, this was a group that was angry about being pushed out of power, using ethnicity to get the international community on board with a regime change attempt. And of course, the U.S. was happy to get on board with this because the U.S. wants their lapdogs back in power. And Abiy Ahmed, while he wasn't exactly some socialist revolutionary, he's not socialist at all. Uh, he's independent. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we should be clear. I mean, he's a liberal. Like, yeah. he, he talks about opening up and reforms and all this right. stuff. He's He's a liberal, but even he's not a puppet is the issue for the Washington. Exactly. That's all that's all that matters is he's, you know, getting closer to China. He's pursuing peace with Eritrea. You know, he won a Nobel Peace Prize for peace for making peace with Eritrea, which the U.S. was not happy about because, you know, Eritrea demonized sanctioned country, most sanctioned country, I think, in Africa, maybe Zimbabwe is worse. I'm not quite sure. But the point is, is. You know, he was doing things independent of the U.S. He was doing things in Ethiopia's interest, as he saw it. And that is always scary for the U.S. I mean, think about how the U.S. acted with with Jamal, with Jamal Abdel Nasser. Like he wasn't a socialist. He had some social welfare policies, um, but he, and he wasn't even like a stooge of the Soviets or whatever. He was kind of like in the he was doing what was best for Egypt and he became an American enemy for that. And so that's what happens with developing countries. As my colleague Eugene Perrier always says, it's under the imperial order led by the U.S., every country has a role. And if you don't play that role, you will be attacked. And that's what happened with Ethiopia. And so the reason we went there is we were covering what was happening in Ethiopia, doing a lot of interviews, hosting people who had been there, hosting Ethiopians, hosting Tigrayans who are against this narrative of Tigray genocide and against this attempt to overthrow the government there. And at one point, you know, at some point we were like, we got to just go because uh, what happened was last, I believe, June, the Ethiopian government declared a unilateral ceasefire, basically handing the TPLF an opportunity to deescalate the violence. And how did the TPLF respond? They responded by launching violent offensives into the neighboring states of Afar and Amhara. And they, I mean, that's where we went. We actually went to Amhara where we went from, like, we, we visited, visited several towns that had been recently taken back by the government from the TPLF. And the people there like just had one story of atrocity after the next. I mean, the TPLF just basically gang raped its way through these towns in an effort to make their way to Addis Ababa. They were trying to collapse the, straight, the state and do as much damage as they could along the way. And it was horrifying. And I encourage people to go check out the packages that we've put out from Ethiopia, which you can find on the Breakthrough News YouTube page. Uh, we interviewed people in Lalibela, which is an UNESCO World Heritage Site for its like very you know, hundred years old churches that were built into the mountains there. And just one story of atrocity after the next, they destroyed the, the airport there for like no reason other than to just screw the local economy that's dependent on tourism. 
We, I, you know, we did a report on women we interviewed who were gang raped pretty systematically by the TPLF. It wasn't just like an atrocity that happened during a war. It was like a, a weapon of war. Uh, and you can see that from the stories that we were told that were full of, you know, not just heart wrenching and scary stories, but also the level of bigotry that they experienced um, while being gang raped in many cases at gunpoint in front of their children. Um, anyways, so there, I, I encourage people to go check that out. But what we saw is a country that, that, you know, Ethiopia is the second largest country in Africa. It has over 110 million people. And the U.S. spent the last couple of years trying to tear it apart. And they didn't succeed. But as a result of the Ethiopian government, which was democratically elected twice, as a result of that government fighting back against a basically U.S.-backed coup insurgency, they've been punished economically uh, in many ways. And, you know, we have reports on that as well. The U.S. has been threatening them with sanctions. So far, they've only sanctioned Eritreans, <laughs> uh, which well, they're used well, to sanctioning. But, they, but the U.S. did remove Ethiopia from an Africa right. aid program, which is kind of a form of a sanction. Yeah, basically. yeah, which actually just, like, hurts all these workers who mostly work at, like, garment factories uh, that are uh, that like our investments of China, but that do make American clothing for various American companies. And all of these women, we actually did a uh, Eugene uh, did a great package, like right when we got back because the US removed uh, Ethiopia from the African Growth and Opportunity Act, known as a GOA for short, on January 1st. And this basically allows for like, allows allows the country to like, uh, make to be a base of making like goods for cheap. Um, and it creates all of these jobs that are mostly, by the way, held by women. So a lot of the women we spoke to, you know, I'm not a fan of garment factories, but to be, you know, if we're going to be honest here, a lot of the women we spoke to who worked at these places, it gave them a level of independence they didn't have before. And it also gave them an income because a lot of them were from really rural underdeveloped areas. And a lot of Ethiopia, well, it's a very rich country, is underdeveloped like a lot of Africa. And so there's a lot of inequality. There's like places we went where people didn't have electricity or like weren't connected to an electricity network. They were like local farmers and like, you know, herders. There's a big herding. Uh, a big part of the economy there is like herding cattle basically. Uh, so this gave a lot of people an out and an opportunity where they could actually use their income to then go get educated, like go to, go to college. Um, and so these people, their livelihoods are now under threat because the U.S. is punishing Ethiopia by removing it from this trade agreement, uh, you know, as a, in an effort to try to get them to stop fighting the TPLF, which, by the way, after they were pushed out of Amhara and Afar, they've now relaunched offensives into Afar where they're doing the same stuff they've been doing. And everybody like New York Times, Washington Post, CNN are cheering this on just like they did with the rebels in Syria just like they do with the right-wing violence in Venezuela. And it's so absurd and ridiculous. And so I feel really lucky that we got to go there and see with our own eyes what was happening. And then, of course, we got to go to Eritrea as well. Well, Ronnie, oh, if I can cut you yeah. off for a second. I just want to say before we go to Eritrea, I want to point out a little historical fact back in the Obama administration. This is an article in the New York Times in 2015. Obama made this historic trip to Ethiopia when it was under the TPLF which, as you said, very much was not a democracy. No. And this is the headline in the New York Times article. Obama in Ethiopia calls its government democratically elected. <laughs> and here they note, Obama twice called the government of Ethiopia democratically elected as he stood by the country's prime minister. 
two months after elections handed every seat in parliament to the governing party and its allies. So, I mean, this, I think, really shows what the U.S. attitude was toward the TPLF regime in Ethiopia. Here's a yeah. photo of Obama with Susan Rice, the war hawk who was his national security advisor. So, I mean, it, the U.S. government definitely strongly supported the TPLF. And yep. another point I just wanted to make really quickly because, you know, there are people on the left who I think rightfully maybe sometimes criticize and are a bit skeptical of, of Abiy. Yeah. Um, you know, Abiy Ahmad, like we said, he's definitely not a socialist. And he's made these speeches talking about, you know, capitalism, reform and open up. But I think the main point is to understand the geopolitics and not just the not just fixating on the internal economics. And when it comes to this, I'm reminded of this brilliant analysis that was recently published in this website, Brazil Wire one of friends of the show, one of my favorite websites, the best English language resource on Brazil. And this was, it's called Brazil, Kazakhstan and the Grand Chessboard. It was published by this guy or written by this guy, Marcelo Cerro, who is a political analyst for the Brazilian Workers' Party Senatorial Caucus. So he works with the left-wing Workers' Party of Brazil, which is the party of Lula da Silva. Mm -hmm. And he has a line in here that is so brilliant because he's talking about how, look, the Kazakhstan government, the Kazakh government certainly was not a socialist government, but, and, and actually it wasn't even a critic, it wasn't very critical of the West. It, it maintained good relations with the US and also with Russia and China. And this is the point that he made in this article, which I think very much applies to countries like Ethiopia, which they're, they're not at the same level as countries like, you know, Nicaragua and China and Venezuela these socialist countries that have an anti-imperialist foreign policy, but there, there's these other countries that, as you know, you pointed out from Eugene talking about how countries play a role, there's these countries that, that try to maintain an independent foreign policy that plays right. China and Russia against the West for what's best for them. And here he describes this policy, I think, really brilliantly. Again, this is an analyst from Brazil's Workers' Party. He says... Everything indicates that for Washington, it is not enough for a government to have good relations with the U.S. It must also have a distant or even hostile relationship with Russia, China, Iran, and all other countries considered enemies by the State Department. It is a foreign policy strategy that bets on conflict and geopolitical exclusion. And Ethiopia is a really good example of this. So yes. you, you actually, I want to get up you really quickly you have this tweet here where you went to a park in Ethiopia oh, that yeah. was built, built by China. And so, yeah. and again, Ethiopia is not some great socialist anti-imperialist government, but it is an independent government that is collaborating very closely with China. China mm -hmm. has turned, uh, and through this mutually beneficial program, has turned Ethiopia into a significant part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And China is helping to build infrastructure in Ethiopia. Talk a little bit about that before you move to Eritrea. Yeah, yeah. No, this is. I'm so glad you brought this up because what's a, what's amazing about having visited Ethiopia, and you know, so much has happened in the last couple of months. We've been to so many places. I actually forgot about this, and it's really important. But we got to go all around Addis Ababa, and one thing that was so clear is 
the that China is building a lot there. They built this massive public library uh, that is, I think, opening probably this that just opened this month or is opening soon. Just huge, accessible, free to all, beautiful building that we got to go inside of. They also built these like big parks in parts of the city that prior to 2018 were basically like just underdeveloped areas where like there was maybe even like homeless people would go and like sleep. But now there are these really nice parks that are accessible to everybody to use. Um, and it's like, it was really interesting because at the same time that we're seeing China aid is building this and building this, it really does speak to the difference between what China and the U.S. are doing in the developing world, because what is the U.S. doing in Ethiopia right now? It's encouraging state collapse and a very destructive war and encouraging a regime change operation, whereas China is just building stuff. And it's not even conditional. It's just to form a relationship with this country. That's why China does this is to form a relationship. Obviously, they want some level of influence in terms of like having partners. Uh, you know, it would be stupid for them not to be doing it to to create good relationships with different countries and have some sort of positive impact from that. But the fact of the matter is that when you talk to people in these countries, that is what they see. That's the reality on the ground. The U.S. is destructive and China is actually building things and investing in their countries in ways that they can actually see and their and benefits their families. And this is why the U.S. has to spend so much money, hundreds of millions of dollars, propagandizing against China across the developing world. They have to do that because the reality like just to look at the reality shows you something very different. And so we saw that very much on display in Ethiopia. Yeah. And I just, I just wanted to stress that point because I think it's clear that the horn of Africa has become a major locus of conflict in the new cold war. I mean, Africa in general, we've seen these coups backed by figures who, who are clearly more pro American than they are pro China. And in the case of Ethiopia, again, regardless of what people think about the policies of the Ethiopian government, which are not necessarily socialist, or they're not socialist at all. They're not necessarily left-wing either. But the reality is that this is an independent country that has a right to independence and, so and sovereignty and self-determination. And it wants to have positive relations with China and Russia and Eritrea, its neighbor. And mm -hmm. Washington only tolerates countries that cut off ties with China and Russia and Iran and Venezuela. Exactly. And so let, let, let's talk about the other. Well, we are real quick. One last, one last Africa, thing. Eritrea. One last thing I will say about China real quick is also when China, just to what you're saying, when China was, or when we were in Ethiopia, the Chinese foreign minister had visited at some point while we were there, had visited the country and had actually made a statement that we do not intervene. And that's the other big difference between the Chinese and the U.S., is despite forming these relationships, China isn't intervening in people's domestic politics. China isn't conditioning aid or investment on what form of, what kind of economy you have. Is it capitalist or socialist? Whereas with the US, you don't get any aid unless you have, or you're punished for having a socialist economy. You're punished for having anything independent or refusing to do what we want you to do. And you're told that you must do this domestically in order for us not to destroy you. So that's also like a huge difference between the Chinese and the U.S. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. Move yeah, on. well, and the, the ultimate irony of this is that it creates this political contradiction where even liberal governments like Abiy Ahmad, who gave speeches about how he's a capitalist and wants reforms and all this, 
even he is forced into forced to take these positions that actually right. ally him with China and other countries if he wants to pursue an independent path of development because imperialism tells countries in the global south that it's our way it's our way or the highway that uh, that you have no other option you're with our us way or, or against the highway us, of death it. it's like yeah, our exactly. way or the highway of death yeah literally in the case of Iraq right yeah so even if you're not a socialist if you want to have an independent path of development you are forced into these positions that make you actually ally with progressive anti-imperialist forces Russia is a good example of that I mean Russia certainly has a capitalist government it's definitely not socialist but Russia is one of the closest allies of Venezuela Cuba and Nicaragua they actually just announced that they're um, partnering for military cooperation so I mean the fact that the U.S refuses to allow Russia to have an independent foreign policy and good relations actually ironically forces the capitalist government of Russia to ally with socialist governments in Latin America out of its own you know self-interest it's, it's an interesting contradiction and and here's an image that you shared on Twitter that I think actually underscores this where Ethiopia a few years ago Abi Ahmad was giving speeches about how he wanted to improve relations with the West and all of this and then they stabbed him in the back and they tried to organize this regime change operation against him and what that actually did is it turned a lot of liberal Ethiopians to the left in a way or at least yeah. made them more nationalist and anti-imperialist and now you have as you tweeted out this this political cartoon in the Ethiopian Herald newspaper you now have these regular representations of anti-american sentiment of people which you never had before in Ethiopia like Ethiopia Ethiopians were very pro-american and the U.S. did a huge disservice to itself by taking this otherwise pro-american country and putting it almost in like the anti-imperialist camp like yeah it's actually it kind of me, incredible yeah I mean it yeah. it does remind me to an extent of Hugo Chavez I mean when when Hugo Chavez won the first election in Venezuela in 1998 he was running as the fifth Republican movement. He, he was running as a left-wing nationalist, but he never talked about socialism. In fact, he gave speeches about how we have to move beyond capitalism and socialism and find a new way and all this stuff. I mean, he was a progressive, but he was not a socialist. And it wasn't until the 2002 coup backed by the U.S. against him that he began radicalizing and moving to the left. And then he declared socialism in the 21st century. So the point is that when imperialism attacks countries, it actually sometimes strengthens progressive forces of resistance. And I think exactly. Ethiopia is an interesting case of this. And Eritrea is also certainly a case of this. So let's talk about the other, the other very important strategic player. So you mentioned Somalia. I, I do. I have like 10, I have like 10 minutes before I have to run. So I will okay. try to do this as briefly as possible, which seems really unfair to Eritrea. But I will say, if you keep your eye on Breakthrough News' YouTube page, we do have our, uh, we actually haven't put out anything on Eritrea yet. That is coming, I believe, next week, if I'm not mistaken. So keep your eye out there. We'll have like a much more in-depth look at Eritrea. But Eritrea, I felt really lucky to go there because a lot of people don't get to go to Eritrea. It's quite, quite to the United States, which has been sanctioning Eritrea. Uh, since I believe like the 90s, if I'm not mistaken, uh, but particularly the last 20 years, uh, all we have actually know about Eritrea or ever here. I mean, I think if you go to YouTube and you put in Eritrea, one of the first things that comes up is like a vice. You can already see where this is going. Oh, it's like God. a mini vice documentary. And the title is something like 
Eritrea, the North Korea of Africa. Like, oh, God. Which, of course, North Korea is another country that is so demonized. Nor yeah, North Korea is not even it. the North Korea of North Korea. Yeah, like yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, Eritrea is a really interesting country because, like you mentioned with Cuba, how, like, a lot of times in the global north, you'll see American officials or European officials taking these developing countries that they've, like, looted and destroyed through colonialism and imperialism and trying to compare them to the rich global north that's only rich because it looted and destroyed those places um, instead of comparing them to their neighbors. And in the case of Africa, Eritrea has some of the best social indicators of on the African continent, particularly when compared to countries that are the greatest allies of the U.S. So like child mortality is lower. Uh, people live to a much older age. Um, and part of that is because of Eritrea's development model, which is, I believe, why it's so targeted. Not only does Eritrea refuse to submit to American imperial dictates, and that's why it's punished, but moreover, Eritrea, you know, has a, has a lot of socialist um, attributes uh, that make it a place that could present a really good economic alternative to what has happened to a lot of the rest of Africa in terms of uh, taking their cues from what the U.S. demands they do, having capitalist economies with like an oligarchic elite that hoard all the resources while the vast majority of people live in like destitute poverty, which is like how Nigeria is, for example, a very close ally of the U.S. Eritrea, on the other hand, has a very um, self-sufficient model that offers free medical care uh, that, you know, we've got to visit like a, a hospital in Eritrea that reminded me a lot of Cuba. I, the, the system didn't seem quite as developed as Cuba, um, but it did offer that same kind of holistic free medical care or medical care so cheap it might as well be free uh, kind of system that focused on prevention, which they have to focus on prevention because they don't have access to all the goods or equipment that they need to deal with like the sort of illnesses that you end up with in the U.S. from not taking care of people throughout their lives. Um, and, you know, Eritrea is always called, oh, it's like so anti-democratic and terrible. But like, again, compare it to its neighbors. A lot of African countries that the U.S. is best friends with don't have democratic systems, including the TPLF-led system in Ethiopia that you just showed everybody Obama went to and praised as democratic uh, back in 2015. Well, so, and also when countries are not able to develop freely, when they're put under siege, you can't expect them to be beacons of Jeffersonian yeah. democracy as if that's like actual democracy anyway. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's right. fake democracy. It is fake democracy because you know what I will. The other thing about um, Eritrea that I found really interesting is like I was expecting to go to somewhere that was like a police state where the police were just everywhere and watching you. But that wasn't at all the case. I don't think again, I don't I think I might have seen like one police car the whole time I was there. Um it actually felt, again, like a very warm place. It helped. The weather was nice, but like the people were really warm. The people were quite educated. And one thing that was really interesting there that was so different from Ethiopia is the countryside was really developed. Um, I'm not saying it was rich because like everybody in Eritrea, you know, it's a poor country that's under sanction. So but people have their basic needs and the countryside was not nearly as underdeveloped and impoverished as the countryside that I saw in Ethiopia. Um, and Eritrea really focuses on sp investing in the countryside over the cities uh, because people you need farmers, you know, as much as in the global north, we've been taught that like farming is gross and weird and being a farmer is just like hard labor. That's not important. It's actually the most important labor. And that needs to be invested in 
and people like it's actually crazy like i yeah, i mean if you can't yeah. eat you die it's, it should right. be obvious <laughs> we're just like oh we just want to be able to like go to grocery stores and live in cities which is actually like super unsustainable and and, like, and that food just comes out of nowhere it just yeah, like just you of, just yeah. pick it off a tree it just grows like yeah it just grows like that and cut yeah nobody has in to the do bag. anything um so they they invest a lot in the countryside and they invest a lot in dams so that the countryside has access to like the farming materials required to do agricultural production. And they focus a lot on self-sufficiency, unlike a lot of the rest of Africa, where like the US dumps its like wheat and grain, which they're forced to accept that ruins their local industries. And they become like dependent on humanitarian aid from these various international organizations. Eritrea is very big on being self-sufficient and being able to feed itself and clothe itself. And well, it sorry works. to cut you off again, yeah. but Eritrea also kicked out USAID and yep. does not accept, does not allow groups to accept money from the US National Endowment for Democracy. And Eritrea, along with Zimbabwe, are the only countries in Africa that do not work with AFRICOM. Right. That's that's and that's one reason why Eritrea is punished as well, because the US is actually ramping up uh the the size of AFRICOM, particularly in the Horn of Africa, uh, which is a very geostrategically important place. So for imperialism. But so, I mean, it was Eritrea, though, it was really incredible too, because like, you know, I think that the way we think about democracy, I'm not saying Eritrea is democratic, but there's different ways to look at what democracy can mean. And there's things that I saw there that I thought were really interesting. Like when it comes to making new, like laws or, or changes to the judicial system, there is like heavy involvement in that process by people who are involved in like law, like the judges and lawyers. Like, but when we were there, we had come like a week after they had this law week where they debated all of the problems and reforms that people want to make to the judicial system. And I thought that was really interesting because we don't do that in the US. And just, you know, not to be so Cuba dominant, but something I forgot to mention that I thought was so fascinating in Cuba, which I actually would argue is more democratic than the US in so many ways, is um, Cuba is currently in the process of, well, they're about to start a debate in parliament about changing their family code. And the family code basically governs like marriage, what happens if you get divorced, what happens with inheritance, uh, the rights of children, uh, same-sex couples and whether they can adopt, um, the rights of women. And Cuba is like, for the past several months before parliament's about to debate this, Cuba has had a system where every single workplace has been debating the family code and what they want and don't want. And government people go and collect information from those debates happening in the workplace, then take those up to the commissions, then take those up to the parliament to debate. So it's a system where you have the country, like a lot of people, regular people across the country, in their neighborhoods even, involved in having a voice in the changes to a law that affects everybody or a code that affects everybody. And I think about that. And they're going to, and then starting in February, they're going to spend the next three months debating this in parliament to institute the reforms that people in their workplaces, the majority of people, wanted. And what I think is so incredible about this is I look at the US. When is the last time any of us had any say in any specific law? Like <laughs> never at, at, at any level, at any level, like 
like our laws are literally just written by like pharmaceutical executives and weapons industry executives and are are the people that we vote to power in Congress, the pre-approved candidates that were given to vote for in Congress in the Senate and the House of Representatives don't even read the bills half the time. Like, <laughs> yeah, and, and I want to point out that it's not hyperbole. There are so many reports of these these cases where like big lobbyists like Alec and all these groups, they literally write legislation because yeah. we've had like leaks of like the Word documents, like the, the files on Microsoft Word, and mm -hmm. it shows the author and the author computer is like one of these big lobbyist firms that are hired by big corporations to literally write legislation in the US. Exactly. That's like how our process works. Like we actually, there is there was a study, I don't remember what school did it, so I'm sorry for like not knowing where to point people. But if you, if you look up like who has power in the U S over like legislation, it turns out that average Americans have zero power. And that's reflected. Yeah, it was a study that was done by a, a Princeton, a yes. Princeton researcher, yeah. which is like, I mean, if, if you're I interested in like bourgeois that. academia, that's as <laughs> scholarly as it gets. Yeah, exactly. So the Princeton researcher, right there it is. Here's, here's Vox saying why oh. it's wrong. <laughs> Vox, which is funded by Walmart, the sponsored content for Walmart. Here's, oh my God. here's BBC study. U.S. is an oligarchy, not a democracy. I mean, so is Britain, by the way. But right, yeah, but I mean, even that, even Britain has a little bit more representation than the U.S. does because they have a parliamentary system. Uh, but yeah, they're also an oligarchy. But I think here, that here's this the study. study in, uh, what were the like numbers? Cambridge. The numbers were the numbers were crazy. It was something like like I don't know. I can't remember. It was like sixty percent. Of, I don't know. I don't remember what the numbers were, and maybe you'll find them as I'm talking about this. But like, here we one go. Thing, a yeah, a okay. proposed okay. policy change with low support among economically elite Americans is adopted only 18% of the time. Like, well, a, pro a proposed change with high support is adopted 45% of the time. So, I mean, rich people. If they don't like a law, it's not adopted. If they do like that's it, why it's probably we don't, that's why we that is why we don't have free college or free healthcare. The majority of Americans want those things. We don't have them because we're not a democracy. And if we were a democracy, we would. So, like, anyways, I know that I'm going, I'm going on a total tangent from Eritrea, but it, no, but it's not a tangent. I mean, because yeah. the U.S. is is punishing Eritrea, and not just the U.S., the European Union. Many countries have imposed sanctions on Eritrea for not adopting that system that they call yeah. democratic. Yeah. That's and they, why it's and being under punished. The, and under the auspices of like human rights violations and democracy. And anyways, I mean, I think Eritrea was a really interesting place. I'd love to go, be able to go back there and spend more time there. I'm excited for our reporting about Eritrea to come out. And, you know, I really do uh, believe like after visiting there, because, you know, before I started like even I didn't really know that much about the Horn of Africa, I'll admit, before the last year, because it's not really the I know I spend a lot of time in the Middle East. Um, and that's kind of my area of like understanding for, for like world affairs. But I'm so glad that I've gotten to visit these places and learn about them. Because one thing that it really taught me is like, there are places the US has demonized to such a strong degree, that even I, like a few years ago, I thought Eritrea was just this terrible place because that's what everyone says. It's a terrible place that everyone's fleeing all the time, right? There's Eritreans like fleeing into Israel and to, into Sudan and to all these places. And you just can't trust these depictions. It's not to say these places are perfect or great or wonderful or don't be critical. It's just, you know, when we're being told to dehumanize people to the point where it's just this black hole of nothingness that we don't really know anything about it, 
You have to question why. And I want to add one more thing about the Horn of Africa. You know, the U.S. is also right now involved in a campaign to try to destroy uh, leaders that they don't like in Somalia. Like one of the things that Abiy Ahmed did that I think the, was, the U.S. was th so threatened by was make peace with Eritrea, have this relationship with Farmajo in Somalia, and it, it, it kind of have this idea of a broader horn of Africa cooperation where all these countries like work together as a region. And there's nothing the U.S. fears more than any sort of level of independence regionally, whether it's the Horn of Africa, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's different regions of Latin America. This is like, in the, like this is this sort of economic cooperation and independence regionally terrifies U.S. imperialism because imperialism is all about dividing and conquering and making sure everybody's stuck in their own little places because you can control them easier that way. That's why the U.S. is so supportive of the sort of um, ethnic-based system that the TPLF set up in Ethiopia because it keeps people divided. That's why the U.S. is so supportive of sectarianism in the Middle East because it keeps people divided. That's why the U.S. is so supportive of these right-wing movements that divide across Latin America because it keeps people divided and on and on and on and on. And so people really need to start thinking about the things in that context. I mean, they already are, I think, but like especially understanding the Horn of Africa in that context because you know, the Horde of Africa has often been neglected in sort of our analysis of things because Africa is just kind of neglected. But this region, especially as this Cold War with China kicks off and becomes even more intense, is is going to become a bigger playground for the U.S. Uh, as that war intensifies. Yeah, and I'm just going to get up a map really quickly showing the Horn of Africa region, just so people understand, just at a geographic level, how incredibly strategic this region is. And, you know, it, co it connects West Asia to Africa, and you have the Gulf of Aden going into the Red Sea. So there's a bunch of trade that goes through here. Here on the map, you can see this area called the Bab al-Mandab, which mm -hmm. connects Yemen to, to Djibouti. And here, and also Eritrea and Ethiopia are right there as well. And here, every single day, there are millions of barrels of oil that go through the Bab al-Mandab. And that's one of the reasons there's been so much fighting in Yemen. The war yep. is still going on in Yemen right now. It's not a coincidence that Yemen is right across, just, you know, just across the ocean right there from Ethiopia, Eritrea, and also Djibouti. Djibouti has many foreign military bases. Many countries have military bases in Djibouti. It's because it's such a strategic geostrategic hub for commerce for politics and of course for the military so i agree this this region the horn of africa is very important geostrategically and i think in the years to come it's going to become even more important especially as the us tries to prevent the rise the further rise of china china has good relations with the countries in the horn of africa and across across the african continent which is why there's so much propaganda about China's development projects in Africa. So on that said, on that note, I know that you have to go, Rania. So I just want to thank you for joining with joining us. Uh, can thank I just, you for can I just do, can I just give one little plug? Yeah. Um, since you've got people on this live stream, don't miss out on our Thursday afternoon, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Breakthrough News Freedom Side live stream hosted by me and Eugene Perrier, uh, also on YouTube. Just throwing that out there for those who are watching. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I would highly recommend every watch, everyone watching. Hopefully you already all are subscribers to Breakthrough News. If not, 
go over to Breakthrough News after subscribing here, if you're not subscribed yeah. to Multipolarista. So, Rania, other than, you know, you, people can follow you on Twitter at Rania Kalik and they can follow your work at Breakthrough News. Is there anything else you wanted to plug before wrapping up? Um, Breakthrough News, we have .org. We have a, a website as well. You can follow all of our other content ends up there as well. Um, and you can follow my uh, website, RaniaKalik.com, where I actually post all the videos you'll see on YouTube anyways. And then I got to shout out Eugene Perrier's amazing podcast, The Punch Out, which is like, uh, just like a very short, like 15 minutes of the most important things you need to know for the day, um, from the day of the news from a left perspective. And actually that's like a huge resource for me, especially when I'm outside of the country. <laughs> but Ben, I just want to say, I'm like so excited for you for this new outlet. I know that you're, you're already producing amazing content and I'm so excited for what's to come. And we're all just very proud of you. Thank you, Rania. Um, uh, mutual admiration. It <laughs> It's I'm I'm always admiring what you all do at at Breakthrough News, and I want to thank everyone who joined us in the chat. This was a good successful live stream. Thanks to uh, there, I know there was a there was a pretty fervent debate going on in the chat. So it was, oh, was there? <laughs> yeah, about a lot of different things. So uh. I mean, it's good to see people you know talking, and I want to thank everyone. Thank everyone, especially the super chat comments. Thanks to Kyle Wool. Thanks to none OYB. Thanks to all of the supporters and, and anyone who wants to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash multipolarista. I'm going to put that in the comments below. And then of course you can also go and support uh, breakthrough news. The last thing I'll say here, I guess, is this super chat comment from red pill, love, <laughs> peace, freedom, happiness, and Antifa anti-fascist. Cool. I, right. I can, that's, that's, that's the message we'll leave with today. Love, yeah. peace, freedom, happiness, and anti-fascism. That sounds, sounds pretty good to me. See you all next time.